All right, briefly, to recap, so what we're doing this summer is we're asking the question, what is church? So, in the month of June, we answered that by saying church is essentially the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so, anywhere we go is church. You cannot go to church. You can't go to church. Nowhere is more church than somewhere else. We are the church. And so, anywhere we go can be church. And so, the, the answer to that is we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So, anywhere we go, the Holy Spirit goes with us. So, with that, we saw that we are all priests. We are a kingdom of priests. We are called to be God's mediators to the world. We are called to take his message. And I love that you guys are talking about mission because that is, without that, we should not exist. And so our job is to be God's mediators to the world, to one another. We saw how worship impacts that. What we do here is called worship. And so we come together and sometimes we sing. A few weeks ago we did not sing and we just talked. And, and so worship can look a lot of different ways. But, but part of what we do as church is we worship. And so this month, in July, we're going to be talking about a different kind of analogy of what church is. And so, really briefly, we're going to start in the book of Genesis. It's just the first book. Starting in, in chapter 2 here, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. Skip down to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the, the man named each creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, but for the man, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place of the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So at the very beginning, God has created all things, and all things are good, and he looks down and he sees the man, but, but that is not good. It was not good that the man was alone, and so God caused him to sleep, and he created a community for the man. And so what we see here from the very beginning is family. We see a family that God has created. So God creates a man and a woman, and they're meant to be family. And so even from there, we see that a, a man will leave his own family of origin and be married to a wife and leave them behind. So skip down to... Chapter 11. Very beginning, God has made man, he's made woman, he's made community, he's made family. It's not good for them to be alone. This event happens. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If one people, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And so, 
to this point in Genesis, we had every human being is part of one family. Every human being speaks the same language. We can assume that they are all one race, and then God splits them and makes them into different races, different languages, different families from there. Very next chapter. The split has happened. People are scattered over the entire earth, and God looks, and he needs somebody to represent him to the world. So the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he had set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to them. So, in the beginning, it is not good for man to be alone. God gives the man a family. All the families are the same family up to Babel. Then he splits all the families into different languages. And then God calls Abram and his wife Sarai to be a family set apart for him. He calls Abram, he calls him out of his country of origin. He calls him out of his people of origin. He calls him out from his original family to be a new family for God. So from here, we see God's plan begin to unfold, that God is going to call this family to bless all the nations. So that goes on for a while. We see the land, we see the temple, we see kings, we see all these other things. And finally, Jesus comes on the scene. And as frequently happens with Jesus, he redefines everything, right? So skip with me to Matthew. And we looked at this when we were talking about Matthew. And I think it's worth noting again. Up to this point, family is defined by blood relationship. It is defined by proximity. It is defined by all these other things. Jesus comes on the scene, and this happens. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So the call of these two guys is very similar to the call of Abram. Leave your family behind. Leave your country behind. Leave your nation behind. Leave your people behind. Follow Jesus. And so what we see here is Jesus begins to unfold a new definition of family. Skip over Matthew chapter 12. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who's my mother and who is my brother? And this would have been a terrible insult to his mother and brothers. People would have been shocked that he would say something like this. This was a rude thing to say about the people that, that raised you, right? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is drawing a line and he is starting to redefine what family looks like. Family was defined by blood, it was defined by birth, now is defined by something else. It is defined by an attachment to himself. James and John left their father Zebedee in the boat and they followed him. Jesus points to his mother and brothers and he says, these aren't my real family, whoever does the will of the father. Skip over to Luke chapter 14. 
large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Jesus loved large crowds, so he turned to them and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So this is a great way to keep the crowds engaged, right? You turn to him and you say, hey, you got to hate everybody that you've ever loved to follow me, right? This is a, just a brilliant tactic by Jesus. But what he is doing is he is redefining family. People come to this with this idea of what family is. And so think about your family. Your family sets your ideas about life. They set your culture. They set your ideas of truth. They set your ideas of who God is, what Jesus is. They set your ideas of what church is about. Family sets all these ideas, and Jesus is calling the people that follow him away from that. He's calling them to loyalty to himself alone. And so what we see is that this new family is centered on Jesus himself. The new family is defined by faith in Jesus alone. And so what it was defined by is by birth, by nationality, by where you're born, by who you're born to, by all these other things. But Jesus is scraping all that away. He's pushing it away, and he's saying, what defines you now is faith in him or not faith in him. That is what defines you. And so he's calling all these people out of their old, comfortable places. He's redefining family. So, this analogy, this month, we're going to be looking at what it means to be the family of God. What does it mean when Jesus calls us to be a new kind of family? Christian hope does not spring from despair about the present. Christians can never be people of the status quo. Christ has risen, and nothing can remain the way it used to be. Jesus is making a high demand that we have to reorganize our ideas of what family is. We have to reorganize our ideas of where we belong and what we belong to. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, is redefining all those things, and this is a shock to the system. This is difficult for us to swallow, but this is what Jesus is. So one of the definitions we've been working with about church is church is God's people, God's image, implementing God's reign, in God's rightful dominion, which is themselves, others, and the world, in the same way he did and he would. And so the way that Jesus began this work is through a family, through a new family. Jesus called a family to himself to begin this kind of work, this kind of mission in the world. He called them together. He called James and John. He called Matthew and Mark. He called these guys together to become a new kind of family. So what does that mean? First month, we looked at church as the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. This month, we're looking at church is the family of God. And so families define us, families shape us, families move us. And this means basically all loyalties. This means all the things we think about. This means all of our ideas of truth and, and things like that. And so the thing is, we're talking in abstract now, but let's talk about the reality of the world we live in. So there's three, mo three eras, basically, of philosophy. So pre-modernism, modernism, and then postmodernism. And these are all different ways of viewing the world. These are all different ways of viewing truth. So pre-modernism, from caveman days all the way to the 1650s, is basically the idea that you appeal to an authority for truth. So you could say, well, the church says X is true. The Bible says Y is true. The Pope says this is true. This was pre-modernism. So you would always appeal to an authority. You could even say seven out of ten dentists prefer this. Whatever, you know. <laughs> this is pre-modernism. And so what happened is pre-modernism started kind of unraveling with the printing press in the 1400s, with Luther and the Reformation in the 1500s. This all started unraveling, and eventually 
1650s, we could declare pre-modernism is pretty much dead, right? None of this happens on a dime. <laughs> None of this happens immediately. It wasn't, it didn't, like the clock didn't turn 1650 and everybody said, all right, we're done with pre-modernism, let's move on. <laughs> That's not how this happens. But basically by 1650s, we had entered an era of modernism. Modernism or the Enlightenment is this idea that truth is objective. Truth can be proven, truth can be observed, and so there's this idea of empiricism. So basically, if we can test it, if we can see it, it must be true. And so no longer do people say, well, this authority said such and such. Now, if you can prove it, it is true. This lasted from the 1650s to the 1950s. And again, nothing changes on a dime. <laughs> so things started to change. People looked around, and they started to say, the deal is, Modernism, the Enlightenment, hasn't fixed all of our problems. And, and the deal is they still make mistakes. They're still fallible. So we entered what is known as postmodernism. And I want to say up front, postmodern is kind of a boogeyman that is used as a catch-all to make people afraid of things. Postmodernism is not in and of itself evil. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It is just an era. It is just the way that the world views truth. And we're part of that. Postmodernism could also be called neo-tribalism. And here's where this really gets interesting. In neo-tribalism, we all have tribes we belong to, and these tribes start to redefine the truth that we believe. These tribes start to tell us X is true, and so no longer do we have empiricism where we say we can experiment and prove this. Now we have a group of people that gather around us, and we say, you know what? This looks like the truth, and we all believe that, and so we pat each other on the back, and we say, yeah, that's got to be true. This is neo-tribalism, and so this is the era we live in, and, and, and right here, right now, I want to confess, this is, a, this is a topic that I've struggled with, I've wrestled with, and, and I'm not bringing any of this lightly, but, but I have a feeling that if you're wearing open-toed shoes today, they might get stepped on. I'm sorry about that. This is a difficult topic. This is a challenge because we're all in the middle of this, and a lot of times we don't recognize it, and so I'm speaking here from my own experience. I've been part of this but I think you all are too. And so what do these tribes mean? What do these tribes look like? Well, we all belong to different tribes. These tribes could be any number of things. They could be a uh, university that we cheer for, perhaps. But our, our tribes all shape our views of truth. So you may say, well, I don't belong to any tribes. Definitely not me. Well, how about this tribe? Anybody belong to that one? <laughs> I think if you belong to this tribe, you get free tattoos, right? <laughs> Is that a low blow? <laughs> Wah, wah. <laughs> uh, perhaps, perhaps you belong in the allergic to turn signals tribe, right? <laughs> Does anybody drive a BMW? <laughs> Did I get anybody on that? <laughs> perhaps you belong into the how are those still states tribe, right? <laughs> I'm from Oklahoma. Come on. We got to have somebody to pick on, right? So we all belong to these tribes, and some of these tribes are a lot more innocuous than other tribes, right? The college football teams we cheer for, those tribes are not quite as demanding. But some of the tribes start to demand that we completely rearrange what we think about the world. I'm not pointing fingers at any one particular tribe, because all the tribes do this, right? They all tell us that our supreme loyalty belongs to them. And it's not just political tribes, it's also national tribes. And I hate to tell you this, but Jesus has a thing about other tribes. Jesus has a demand, and we can belong to his tribe first, or not at all. And that's the call of Jesus, and, and that's the heavy weight that I've been wrestling with this, because what has happened is these tribes have started to 
to command our allegiance in ways that Jesus himself wants to demand it. We've started to not question what these tribes tell us. We've started to recognize these tribes as our authority rather than Jesus alone. And this has led us to a dark place, in my opinion. It's led us to a bad allegiance. So what does this look like? You may look and you may say, well, I don't do that. I'm not a part of any of that. I want to encourage you, if you are a part of this world, you are a part of this. We all live in this world of feedback loops. So we've got three of the primary feedback loops, and I belong to all three. <laughs> so here's how these things work. The first one is Facebook. And you may not be on Facebook. You may say, ah, that's lame. I don't do that. A lot of people do belong to that. So if you are on Facebook and you find something and you interact with it, you get more things like that. If you like it, you see more stories like that. If you share it, you get more from the same person you shared with. So what starts to happen is your news feed is completely things that you already agree with. You're no longer in a place where you have to hear things that you don't believe to be true. Your tribe is established by your Facebook feed. Same thing on Twitter. You don't have to follow anybody on Twitter that you don't want to. So suddenly you start to only see the things that you already agree with. You start to only see the tribe that you belong to online. Reddit is exactly the same. You pick the subreddits you belong to, and those are the ones you see. That is the truth you start to see. So our online presence is dictated by these conglomerations, these algorithms that show us what we want to see. You may say, well, I don't participate in any of that. How about some of the other tribes we participate in? These news stations, they don't show you stories that you don't want to hear because what happens if, if you see a story you don't want to hear? What happens if you see something that you disagree with? And, and so a lot of times we give them nefarious things, but, but, but ultimately these are all just businesses. They want your eyeballs and they want advertisers' money. You are more engaged if you see things you agree with because you'll keep liking it, you'll keep sharing it, you'll keep the television on. They don't have any incentive to say things you don't want to hear. Jesus has these huge crowds following him, <laughs> and what does he do? He turns and says, if you don't take your cross, if you don't hate your father and mother, you can't belong to me. So we have this difficulty of reconciling these tribes, right? We've got these online tribes, we've got these television tribes, and they're calling for our allegiance, they're calling for our feelings and our, our thoughts. And you may say, well, I'm not really affected by that. Me neither, <laughs> totally. But... I was watching this documentary on Netflix one time, and, I mean, it was highbrow stuff, and, and they did this thing, I was talking to Don about this, actually, they did this thing about Harry Truman, and I, before this, I had no opinion of Harry Truman, zero, but by the end of this episode, I thought, I hate Harry Truman. <laughs> Harry Truman has got to be the worst person I've ever heard about. I cannot believe he did this, I cannot believe he did that, and at the end of this episode, I was just shocked and appalled that anyone could still like Harry Truman. <laughs> And you know what? Never met Harry Truman. <laughs> I've never read an honest book about Harry Truman. I watched a documentary, and the documentary was so well done that it influenced the way I viewed Harry Truman, a guy who's been dead for how long? I don't have any idea. This guy has no impact on my life today, but I came out of it with a very strong opinion of him, and this is what our tribes want to make us do. So you may say, well, I, I'm, I'm impervious to that. Totally agree, you are. <laughs> but... So what we're going to do is I'm going to put up a couple pictures, and I'm going to say, so what if this person suggested a bill for Congress? Would you be, don't answer out loud. Generally for or against that bill. Don't answer out loud. All right. Now what if this person put up a bill for Congress? Would you be generally for or against that bill? And, and what if I suggested to you 
that they both supported one and the same bill. <laughs> and, and here's the thing about the tribalism in our world today. Every person here probably had a visceral reaction to at least one of those photos, if you know who those people are. You probably felt something. Have you ever met either of those people? <laughs> Have you ever had a chance to interact with them? Do you know what Jesus thinks about those people? This is the loyalty that is demanded by our tribes in our world today. It tells us how to think and how to feel, and ultimately we have to question, are these the things that Jesus would want us to think and to feel? These are all feedback loops, and, and Jesus' call is that his tribe is the tribe. His call is that we belong to, and, and, and so anything that comes on the noise, our job is not to say, how do the Republicans think of that? How do the Democrats think of that? Our job is to say, how would Jesus think about this? Our job is to pause and step back and to say, what does my chief tribe that I belong to, what does it say about these things? Instead of saying, how does my team think about this? This is the call of Jesus, and it's a heavy call, and it's difficult it's so easy just to go along with whatever our tribe tells us to think about these things. So we may say, we may look at that, and we, we may recognize that they dis distort our views and they redefine our truth. And, and so then we may step back and we say, but what about if that other tribe really, really hates us? What about if they really have bad feelings for us? What if they really wish to do us harm? And I think, again, we are called to belong to Jesus' tribe first. This is a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, the will of God is that men and women should defeat their enemies by loving them. Christian love draws no distinction between one enemy and another, except that the one, the more bitter our enemy's hatred, the greater his need of love. Be his enmity political or religious, he has nothing to expect from a follower of Jesus but unqualified love. In such love, we are disciples of Christ, or we are not Christians at all. This is a heavy quote from a guy who lived in Nazi Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls to us to belong to the tribe of Jesus and his tribe first. So if church is God's people, God's image, implementing God's reign and God's rightful dominion, themselves, others in the world, in the same way he did, he would, the same way Jesus did, the same way Jesus would, it's by loving his enemies, right? Church is the family of Yahweh, and the family of Yahweh welcomes all and loves everyone, even if they were the wrong tribe. This is a heavy weight, and I know that this is a heavy call. This is the difficulty we're called to live in. This is the cross we're called to bear. So what does this look like? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. So at the time this was written, the church was struggling with divisions. There were the Gentile Christians, the Jewish Christians. They all came from different families, from different backgrounds. They had different political ideas. They had different philosophical ideas. And into that world this is written. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision... Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, 
the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we have both access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of his apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We're not called to not have differences We're not called to not recognize those differences. We are called to be one body in spite of those differences. This is the heavy and high call of belonging to Jesus' tribe first. So I think about if Jesus came today, who would welcome him the most? I think about the conservatives that would look at Jesus today and they would call him a ridiculous liberal. And I think about the liberals today who would look at Jesus and call him a crazy conservative. And I think we have a recognition that we have to belong to Jesus first. Every single thing we talk about, every single thing we think, the way we view politicians that we may not agree with, it is our job to love those people in the way Jesus did and the way he would. This is a heavy and high call. But this is the call of the church. And so what does it look like? Well, it doesn't look like not talking about differences. A lot of times what happens is we see these differences and we just refuse to talk about them. It doesn't look like that at all. It looks like talking about them in a better way. Can you imagine if we entered dialogue with kind hearts? <laughs> Can you imagine if we listened well to people we disagreed with? Can you imagine if we said, you know, that's, that's a fair point. I, I follow Jesus first and here's why I think X, Y, and Z. That would be radically different than the way we see the dialogue in our world. Basically, what we see is as soon as people disagree, they're told they're evil, they're spawned from the pit of hell, they're the worst thing that anybody's ever seen. And what if we were different? What if we were Jesus to those people? What if instead of seeing something on the news, we, went, we didn't go straight to Twitter or Facebook and ask all of our tribe how, that, how we should respond? What if instead we went to the scripture? What if instead we went to prayer? What if instead we called fellow Christians and we said, what do we do about this? To me, that is belonging to the tribe of Jesus first. To me, that is different. That is the way we're called to be. So church, this month we're going to be looking at what it means to be the family of Jesus, what it means to be the family of God. And and I promise I'm going to try not to step on toes as much the rest of the month. I know it's uncomfortable, I know it's hard, but I think it's important we have these kind of conversations. I think it's important we're honest about where we're at. And I think it's important we continue these difficult things. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that we would have a heart for loyalty to you first. Lord, in in many cases that means to you alone. We ask that you would call us to be set apart, call us to be different, give us the strength of character to love those that would view us as an enemy. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.